only God can declare what is clean and what is unclean. We're in Mark chapter 7 today. And if you have not been with us in a while or you're with us for the first time in a while, we as a church have been going through the gospel of Mark, Mark's story as to who Jesus is, his recollection of the good news of Jesus based on his interaction with more than likely Peter and In our text today, we're going to cover the whole of this chapter. And this chapter finds its central theme in verses 14 and 15, where Jesus says this, Listen to me, all of you, and understand this. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Ins and outs. Why is it in? Why is it going out? What's coming? What's going? What's going to happen when it gets here? What's taking place that's going to affect us? Three weeks ago, I I was walking in our church parking lot. It it was one of those exercise walks where I wasn't going as fast as I should probably go, but I was going faster than a normal person should. And as I'm walking through the parking lot, I look over and I notice that one of the gentlemen who's been here in the room putting the tile down throughout our church, he's looking for me. And as he sees me walking in the parking lot, he begins to wave at me, trying to get my attention, trying to get me to come into the building. And I was really nervous because I don't like when bad things happen and I'm the only person that's here. I don't like when bad things happen at all, but especially if I'm the only person that happens to be here. And when he gets my attention, I'm running, thinking, oh, his coworker has cut off a finger or cut off an arm or... Worse, the refrigerator's not working at the church. I'm processing all of this in my mind. When I get there to him, he said to me, I want to show you something. He runs me into this room right here. He points to that garbage can at the back of the room. Not lying, if you felt like you needed to turn your head, it's back there, I promise. And when he points to it, there is a baby bat on the garbage can. And I did what I do during these situations. I left immediately. I called Jared to let him know that there was a bat in the building. That night, there was a meeting. It was a membership meeting where Jared and Greg are going to meet with one of our new families, and they sit down together. If you have ever been part of these, you go through the commitments that you are making to be part of our church. We as the elders go through the commitments that we're making to you. It's this membership covenant. And Jared asked the gentleman, what do you do? And he said, well, I have spent the last few years getting bats out of buildings. So Jared runs him into the sanctuary, very unlike what I did earlier when I ran out of the building, shows him the bat, and the man says, oh, that's a baby. He gets the bat out of the building, and as he's getting the bat out of the building, Jared calls me on the way home to let me know how the Lord works, and I think that's amazing. Fast forward three weeks to Friday. I'm sitting in the conference room at the long table and I'm looking at my whiteboard, I'm looking at my text and as I'm processing all of this, I notice what looks like a bird flying through the building. But, it's, but it hit me, that's not a bird, it's a bat. It's a big bat. Like, turn me into a vampire kind of bat. And I was in the conference room, so rather than running out of the building, I just shut the door, not thinking, how am I going to escape if this gets bad? I'm looking at the bat flying back and forth, back and forth. 
It's losing its mind. They tell me that bats cannot see. I'm not sure if that's an urban legend or what. But all that I noticed was this bat just kept hovering back and forth in the next generation room. I refuse to call it next gen because we don't abbreviate words. I think to myself, how am I going to get rid of this bat? I call Jared. Jared lets me know that bat will not bother me. That's easy for him to say as he sits in the comfort of his school that he's teaching. So I think to myself, I know what I will do. I'll just open the door. And if I leave the door open, the bat will leave. That is categorically untrue based on all of my Google searches about bats. But what I was opening the room to do, what I was opening the building to, was not for the bat to leave, but for anything else to come in. For birds to come in. For random people on the street to come in. For critters to come in. That's what we're dealing with. And when we get to Mark chapter 7, what we see is this unique interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, but not just the Pharisees. Jesus and this woman who doesn't really belong. And you see this weird exchange of ins and outs. So if you've got your Bible, we're open to Mark chapter 7. I'm going to read through the entirety of chapter 7 with us. The Pharisees came and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they gave for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they've washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked him, Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonial unclean hands? He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it's written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands, abandoning the commands of God, and they hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of his mother or father must be put to death. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corban, that's an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things, summoning the crowd together. He told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the thing that comes out of a person, that's what defiles him. When he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and it's eliminated. Thus he declares all food clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, theft, 
murders, adulteries, greed, evil action, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. He got up, he departed from there to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and he did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, she came and she fell at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she was asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Listen, let, let the children be fed first, because it isn't, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she replied, Lord, Lord, even the dogs under the table, they eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, Because of this reply, you, must, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. When she went back home, she found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. Again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. The thought, they brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begging Jesus to lay his hands on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private after putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting. He touched his tongue. Looking up to the heavens, he sighed deeply and said, Afafta, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak clearly. He ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed it. The more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed it. They were extremely astonished and said, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. Only God declares things clean and unclean. He's the only one who can. It's interesting when we come to the conclusion of our text last week and we notice that Jesus has walked on the water. When he walks on the water, we then find him in this area where the religious leaders happen to be, the Pharisees, some of the scribes. But these aren't just any Pharisees. These are next-level Pharisees. They're not just any Sadducees, they're next-level Sadducees. How do we know that? We know that because the text says to us, these are not just Pharisees, and these are not just Sadducees, they are Pharisees from Jerusalem. They are from Jerusalem, which is the center of thought for the Jewish people. It is where they get their understanding, it's where they get their direction. It, it is similar in many ways to the idea that we've got great doctors here, but you know if you live in Lake Jackson, if something super serious is going on, more than likely you're driving where? Houston. They believe that the Pharisees from Jerusalem are next level. And these Pharisees, who were next level, they come to Jesus and they have a massive question for Jesus. Hey, Jesus, when we look at you, we notice that every bit of the ceremony, every bit of the ritual, all of the rules that we've been following and that we believe that everyone should follow and that we've asked everyone to follow and that we would like for you to follow, the guys who are with you, the, the fishermen, the tax collector... 
the lawyer, these scrubs that are traveling around with you, these 12 dwarves that go everywhere you happen to go, Jesus, we notice that they don't do the things that we would have them to do and they don't act the way that we would have them to act. Can you deal with that? Multiple times in the New Testament, Jesus is very coy with the Pharisees working around them. That's not what takes place here. When Jesus addresses the Pharisees in the passage, he does not indirectly deal with their sinful hearts. He directly deals with it. And when he directly deals with the sinful hearts of these Pharisees, he comes after them from Isaiah, something from which they would know. He says to them, he prophesied about you hypocrites. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the word hypocrite, hip, hip-hop, hip-hop anonymous, I'm not sure what you know about hypocrites. The idea in the New Testament is very much tied to the, to the play actors. They would have theaters and there would be those who wore masks. And Jesus has just said to these Pharisees who are the religious right, the ritually right, those who believe that they are correct, you're just wearing a mask. Pharisees are never portrayed as the good guys. If you were a good guy because you were religiously active and you have really perfect religious attendance, then the Pharisees would be the good vegetables in those cartoons. They never are. They're always portrayed as wicked because they are always interacting with Jesus in a way that exposes their wicked hearts. You mask wearer. And I wonder if God, as we, he addresses the Pharisees in this passage, may, just may, be addressing me and you. Our wickedness and our mask wearing. As we say that we love God with our hearts, but the way that we treat others and the way that we respond to what he would actually have us to be and who he would actually have us to be, those things are far from us. He then says this, You honor me with your lips. Make a mental note there that he addresses the idea that Isaiah references the lips. You honor me with your lips, but your heart, it's far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine human commands. This is, as one friend puts it, we know that it's bad for our kids to play in the street. If you know that, could you shake your head? Yes, maybe even raise your hand. It's probably bad for your kid to play in the street. So you give them a rule that says don't go past the flower bed. It's not terrible or dangerous for them to play in the flower bed, especially if you keep it. Now, if you're one of those people who has weeds and snakes, that's on you. The Pharisees have given rules based on their interpretation of what Scripture says as opposed to what Scripture is actually saying. And they have heaped extra laws on top of the Jewish people who were already working with 613. They've made it difficult for normal, everyday people to interact with God. They believed they were protecting God. And Jesus says to them, you're just really, really far away. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. So you had what God told you to do, and, and 
that wasn't good enough for you. So you've rewritten the rules. You've reworked the code. You've said, I know better than God, even though you believe your intent is to honor God. If we believe that we know better than God, we are not honoring God regardless of what we do. He told them they were so far away. He, he says in verse 8, Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human traditions, and then he drops this on them. You have a fine way. You've got a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. You've made God about you. So easy to forget the Pharisee in me. Because he's there. He goes to war with me every day. The New Living Translation reads it this way. You skillfully sidestep the laws of God. You've, you've played coy. And then Jesus does what the kids call, comes with receipts. He begins to talk about Corbin. Now, you may not be a Corbin historian. Here's what it is. It's a dedication of a property or possession to the holy use upon your death. So that sounds good, right? When I die, my will says that the Pharisees, they can use this for the, the, the movement of Israel. That sounds awesome. That sounds like a good thing because we should praise God with our stuff. And thinking ahead to do that is not bad. But situations at times uh, where this will needs to be reconsidered may take place. So imagine that you say to the Pharisees, you can have my Corbin, whatever your Corbin is, your property, your possessions, but a mom or a dad falls sick. You've made this promise, this huge lump sum, but you've got to pull from it to take care of your sick mother and father. Because after all, the, the law says what? You should honor whom? your mother and your father. In order to honor your mother and your father, you have to say to the Pharisees, hey, your extra rule, the Corbin, I know it was a good idea, but I've really got to take care of mom and dad because they're super sick. And the Pharisees would say, no. Jesus uses this logistically to point out that these people claim to be serving God with Corbin, but they can't really obey God because they're not allowing the people to honor their mother and father. You miss it. You just miss it. Jesus goes on. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother, they must be put to death. But you say, If anyone tells his mother and father whatever benefit you might have received from me as Corbin, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Jesus goes on to tell them that they have nullified the word of God by their tradition that they've handed down. He then says something that comes after all of us and is a tad bit invasive on his part and a little bit offensive. You do that with a lot of stuff. You skillfully sidestep God's law for your benefit. The Pharisees, they know a lot about the Torah and they're puffed up with pride because they know a lot about it. And that posture reeks of the stench of death 
the things that seem to be closest to the heart of God in Scripture offend the Pharisees the most. Chad, I don't know what your point of reference in there. What is it that is close to God's heart that offends the Pharisees? Let's start with Jesus. He continually offends the Pharisees. The loving kindness that we're called to in Micah 6, 8, which is reaffirmed in Mark 12, 30 and 31 in the Great Commandment, offends the hearts of Pharisees. The idea of grace offends the hearts of the Pharisees. It's so ironic to me that those of us who claim to be people who believe in the doctrine of grace and the truth of grace seem at times to be the least gracious people. R.C. Sproul says this, sometimes we emulate Pharisees more than we imitate Jesus. Jesus is pointing out that the problem to which purity laws point is internal. That's what he says to them. This is a you problem. It's not what you're putting in. It's what's coming out of you. Our human motivations, what's inside of you, that's what's corrupt. So you can do all of the ceremonial washing and you can clean all the ceremonial cleansing, but if you are not addressing the inside, you've not addressed anything. You don't think you have this in you? Let your kid get in trouble with a bunch of other kids. If we want to really address the idea of purity in our hearts, and whether or not we think that people are pure, let your child get in trouble with other children. The things that come out of our mouth. My, my child? My baby? Use crass language? Well, I did see the bumper sticker on, his, on that other kid's mom's car. My little girl was disagreeable with you? Well, you do vote differently than we do. A snappy reply from, his, from a mischievous six-year-old? That poor kid's dad has a quick tongue. If we are not addressing heart issues, then we're not addressing anything. We can have our kids in the most... We can put our kids in situations that are impervious in our understanding of impervious to the woes of the world. But if we are not dealing with the fact that every one of us has a wicked heart, we miss it. And that's what Jesus says to them here. Your heart is far from me. Summoning the crowd... He told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. I love this because he's talking to the Pharisees, but he goes beyond talking to the Pharisees to deal with everyone. This is, if you've ever been given, if you've ever been giving direction to children playing a sport or a game, and you're in charge. My man Greg Baker knows a lot about this. Greg deals with 5th through 8th graders every Wednesday night. He gives direction to games. There are going to be one or two kids who inevitably degree, disagree with every direction you give. So you have to say to all of them, Hey y'all, circle up and listen to me. Jesus in the passage has the Pharisees, 
that are speaking to him in ways that are not honoring God in any way, shape, or form. And he says to everyone else, everybody circle up. Just circle up. Listen to me. It has nothing to do with what's on the outside. It's what's going on on the inside. He comes after something that's deeper than external. All their lives they've been hearing the tradition of the Pharisee is right. Jesus calls all the people to himself and he instantaneously undoes that. This this cleanliness idea. It's a huge problem for the church, especially when we transition from Old Testament law, which are helpful signposts that are pointing to one who would purify us really, to the reality of Jesus being with us. Paul has to address it. He addresses it in the the New Testament multiple times. Mark addresses it here because he's got a Gentile audience in some belief. We're addressing these things because it's a real problem for us. The Old Testament laws, they spoke of purity. Everything serves as a sign to move you to your need of it. Everything that we see in these laws in the Old Testament are pointing you to the fact that you are impure. And Jesus is the destination. When Jesus arrives, he undoes it all. He he has opened up the idea that we can walk with God and know God and trust God and believe God. He has made it so that our purity is something that we can know. Purity is a person. He's doing this crowd, this public teaching. One writer says this, Curiously, the righteous Pharisees, they have little historical impact, save for a brief time in a remote corner of the Roman Empire. But Jesus and his disciples, and these disciples, the eleven, we don't count Judas. They're an ornery, undependable, hopelessly flawed group of people. They are moved by the power of the gospel. And that it would offer free forgiveness to the worst sinners and traitors. The Lord used these men to change the world. Calls the disciples in. Verse 17. When they got to the house, away from the crowd, things already dealt with the crowd. Y'all listen up. Gets to the disciples, they don't get it. Because they are a tad bit doofusy sometimes. That wasn't in a commentary. It's for free. When he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you also lacking in understanding? You don't get it yet? Don't you realize that nothing going into the person from outside can defile him? Then Jesus has to explain the potty to them. That's what happens in the next few verses. But they are ignorant at this point. They've been ignorant throughout. They're ignorant when he feeds the crowd. 5,000 people, they miss it. They're ignorant when he walks on water. They're ignorant when he declares the reality of his presence. They're ignorant that Jesus just said, I'm standing here as purity in your midst, and all these people miss it. 19, for it doesn't go into a heart, but into the stomach, and it's eliminated. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. We then move to this next portion of the story. And in the next portion of the story, they leave... 
their typical Jewish surroundings, and they go to the outskirts, this place called Tyre. He departed to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little girl had an unclean spirit, she came and she fell at his feet. And if you're a parent who's ever had a kid who has any type of sickness whatsoever, you know the extent to which you will go to help them get better. You go to doctors, you go to nurses, you start Googling things, which is a bad thing to do. The woman was a Gentile, a Seraphonician by birth. She's a Greek-speaking, Syrian, Phoenician woman. Lincoln Duncan says, if Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees, this lady is a Gentile of Gentiles. Matthew tells us that Jesus tries to dismiss her twice. And here's what she said to Jesus. She was asking him to cast the demon out. Two times Jesus says something. It would be wrong if I... It would just be wrong. I wasn't sent for you. I shouldn't give the children's bread to you. She's begging Jesus, asking him. And it seems like... What is... This is weird. You would think that if you read the other gospel writer, he would make it cleaner. Like, look, it, but Matthew shows us how gentle Jesus is. Matthew's worse. It's worse. She's begging Jesus. She's not the only one begging. The disciples, they're begging too. But, but they still don't get it because they're begging for him to make her go away. They don't get that he's just declared that cleanliness is not something that just belongs to them. 27, he said to her, let the children be fed first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Did Jesus just call a woman a dog? Jewish people, because of their cleanliness rules, would not really interact with dogs. Dogs were scavengers. They, they were problematic. I'd probably agree with them. Gentiles weren't what we would call a pet owner in the year of our Lord 2022. But they would let dogs in the house. They would sit there at the table and eat from the kids. Jesus knows who he's talking to. She says to him, Lord, even the dogs eat the children's crumbs. She knew what every single one of us need to remind ourselves of every single day. Jesus is not going to let anyone who comes to him go away with nothing. In the summer of 2004, I was preaching at a camp in two hours from my house in Chattanooga. My grandmother had never been to see me preach at any event whatsoever. And she finally visited. She never would come. She didn't even drive. Someone brought her, my two cousins or something. But this was close enough for them to come. And she told me she was going to bring some things that I loved. Fried chicken, biscuits, sweet tea. Three things. I'm not good at math. I didn't promise that. 
she was running late, and I had some of my friends go out back to meet her and help her carry everything in. When I finished my message, I went to see her, and she told me that she'd given all of my food to my friends, and that she told them to go ahead and eat while it was hot. Now I was hot. I made a beeline for the back, and when I walked in, everything that she had made was gone. It was intended for me, but her huge heart had allowed everyone to take it. I had eaten that from her my entire life. They got a taste, a taste, and friends still text me about it. What Mark is doing in this story is intentional. Now, we noticed when Jared preached a couple of weeks ago, and he did such a fantastic job, Jesus feeds the 5,000. We can discuss the numbers if you'd like. 5,000 is what it says. Maybe 15,000, 20,000 people. Jewish people and their families. Here in this text, Jesus declares everything is clean. Jesus heals a Gentile mother's child. Jesus has many Gentiles who are going to come to him for healing. And she uses the language of bread droppings here. From this point forward in Mark's gospel, you see the message of Jesus as the Messiah is not just limited to a Jewish audience. It's now for everyone who would believe. This, faith, this child, this woman, and her faith in Jesus. We will see that Jesus will feed 4,000 in a few weeks. And when he feeds 4,000, that's a crowd made up of Jews and Gentiles. The message of the Messiah has now exploded beyond just one particular crowd. She replies to him, Lord, even the dogs eat under the table of the children's food. Duncan points out that she didn't just say, Lord. She said, Oh, Lord, begging Jesus... It's the only time that someone cries this out directly. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are missing that the Messiah is in their midst, but not this lady. Then he told her, because of your reply, you may go. The demon left her daughter. When she went back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. This Messiah, this Savior, is not limited to a very small portion of people, whether they be in Israel or whether they be in here. If your belief about Christianity is limited to people who believe exactly like you believe, you're missing it. We have one thing that unifies us. Christ crucified, Christ resurrected as the hope of the world. And there are believers around the globe who disagree with me about every other point. But I want you to know if they believe that Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected is the hope of the world, then we are bound together as brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. What would our hope communicate? He's not just limited to people. Last night there was a basketball game. Maybe you watch basketball, maybe you don't. Coach K's last game. It wasn't supposed to be his last game in his opinion. Duke lost. And this year, Duke University is the regular season conference champion. Do you think that Coach K is satisfied with that? No. Because there's more. The true Messiah that is Jesus who we have met the true Messiah that we believe in as a body of believers who gather together here. He is more than just Lord of people who think like us, believe like us, hold fast to these tertiary things that we may hold fast to. 
Jesus is there, 31, again, leaving the region of Tyre. He went way out. Uh, he keeps going out, 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 out through the region of the Decapolis. That means that he's in Gentile territory still. They brought death, a, a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begging Jesus to lay his hand on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private and putting his finger in the man's ear and spitting, which is weird because we call that a wet willy at Eastridge Middle School. He touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Aphathra, which I did not say correctly, but that's okay. It means be opened. Mark does this. How many of you have noticed that sometimes when Jesus is talking in Mark, there's these parentheses? Anybody see that? The parentheses where it will give you a word in another language that you probably can't pronounce. He's speaking in Aramaic, which is common tongue. It's backwood speak. It's country talk. It's this little subtle reminder from Mark that when Jesus came down from heaven, he came all the way down to the lowest of the low, available to the furthest people who were away from him. Immediately, her ears were open. His tongue was loosened. He began to speak clearly. He ordered them to tell no one, but they wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. And then they proclaimed it. Now remember, at the very beginning of chapter 7, which was just a little bit earlier today, though you are not looking at me like it was, he tells the Pharisees that their, their lips don't honor the Lord when he meets with them. And when he closes out this time, in chapter 7, he frees a man's tongue to speak to the honor of the Lord. We are a people, as followers of Jesus, who have experienced a salvation that has trickled all the way down to us. They are astonished, has he done, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In the words of one of our 80s poets, but, 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 but baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because Jesus is going to do even more. Today, we're going to eat of the bread. We're going to drink of the cup. We're going to drink of the bread that is alluded to in this passage. The broken body of Jesus. The shed blood of Jesus. And we are to remember that we are beggars who have been invited to a table. But this food, it doesn't run out. That we are people who are deaf and who have mute mouths. Who have been given ears to hear and words to speak. We have been invited to the kingdom of God. To be part of who Jesus is and why Jesus is that. And to be people who declare that our Messiah has no limits. So what I would like for you to do now is this. I'm going to begin to pray over us. The band will get in place. There are communion opportunities for you around the room. When I conclude my prayer, I would invite you to get the elements. And Jared will tell us what to do next. Heads bowed, please. If you're here, may I just ask you this? If you've never believed in Jesus, I want you to know that you may think that you're so far from Him that you can't get to Him, that's untrue. You don't have to get to Him because Jesus came to you. Lowest of the low. He reaches us where we are. And if you never placed your faith in Jesus, would today be the day of salvation for you where you say to Jesus, Jesus, I want your sacrifice to be mine. I want your death on the cross to be my life because I'm a sinner and I'm far from you. And if that's you, I would love to talk to you about that, pray with you about that, encourage you with the truth of what takes place when we consider that as followers of Jesus.
you're a believing person in the room, there, there's a possibility that you're, for whatever reason, you feel far from the Lord. Would you be reminded that your faith in Jesus makes you whole? Father, as we look into your word, I pray that it has made you clear. Lord, I pray that you have preached a better sermon than the one that I preached. I pray that you will speak to us as your people and we will hear from you as people who know you and trust you. Father, I pray that you will help us to see what it means to be yours. Lord, I pray for the those in the room like me who have pharisaical leanings. God, I pray that you would help us to see that impurity is in us. That our hope is that you have come from outside. Lord, you make us clean. You make us whole. And if you have not dealt with our sin, then our sin is not dealt with no matter how lined up our lives may seem to other people. Lord, I pray for those who are lost in this room. Lord, I pray for the, the our family of faith. God, I pray right now that you are giving us opportunities to say that we believe that you are good and that you're better than anything the world offers. And I pray that we don't lose sight of that. And Lord, I pray for every moment that we are told a lie from the enemy, that we, Lord, that we don't have anything to say. Lord, I pray that we'll remember that you've touched our tongues. You've opened our ears. You've allowed us to hear from you and you've allowed us to speak as people on your behalf. So, Lord, would you work in the lives of sinful people because you are a sinless God? We ask all of this in Jesus' name.